Good morning, everyone. This morning, I want to finish up a kind of a message series that I began turning us toward from time to time called Transforming the Heart of the City. You may remember a few weeks ago that I mentioned I shared a message back in 2019 about how to love our neighbors. And then this July 10th, I talked about the secret sauce of evangelism, which, of course, is hospitality. Pastor Claire followed up with a rather great message on hospitality on the 24th. And now I want to finish up this series by talking about what may be the most important issue that we will face as we seek to be a part of God's mission to transform the heart of Greenville and beyond And the issue has to do with identity and how that is formed. Now, in order to do this, I want to turn our attentions to a few verses in the same book to which Pastor Charlie took us last week. And that is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, specifically chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Now, Charlie did a great job of laying out the context of the book. In which he noted that the big issue that Paul was addressing in the letter was whether in order to become a Christian, a Gentile had to become a Jew first. Now, I think to our 21st century ears, that question may not sound so compelling. But for the early Christians, some of whom had Jewish backgrounds, others who were Gentiles, there was no bigger topic. You see, for the Jews, the starting place for acceptance before God was obedience to the regulations of the law of Moses. And these regulations, they felt, identified them as God's people. The law gave them what sociologists call identity markers, which allowed them to set themselves apart and to tell them who they were and their purpose in life. But here Paul says that believers in Christ are called to die. They're called to die to this idea that the law is at the center of our identities. And instead to turn to Christ alone for our total trust and surrender. Obedience to the law is not forgotten, however. Obedience to the law then flows afterwards, after we come to Christ, as an expression of our trust and surrender. Because as we will learn when Pastor Richard teaches this fall in the book of James, faith without obedience is dead. Well, anyway, we'll get into a little bit more of that in just a little while. But for the moment, I'm going to ask you to read along with me now as I read for us from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Hear now this portion of a reading of God's holy word. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does this mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained to the law, then Christ died for nothing. 
May the Lord God bless to us this reading of a portion of his holy word. Many of you know that I was a part of a small team from our church that went to Liverpool, England a few weeks ago. And from time to time, you may have heard me or someone else in the congregation talk about Liverpool. And so you might be wondering, why in the world are we at First Pres, Greenville, South Carolina, involved in there of all places? Well, over the last few years, our admissions committee has tried to move in a more strategic direction, concentrating on a shorter list of selective mission partners and yet becoming more relationally connected to them. So we call this kind of strategic perspective, we call it digging fewer wells deeper. And one of those wells is in Liverpool. But again, you might be asking, why in the world Liverpool, England? Well, there are three reasons why, really. First, you may or may not be aware of this. I think we may have mentioned this before, but the church in Iran happens to be the fastest growing church in the world. And so, first of all, we feel like strategically it's important for us to be a part of resourcing that movement, adding fuel to the fire, so to speak. Secondly, the U.K. processes all of their refugees through the city of Liverpool. And a great many of these refugees are from the Middle East and in particular, Iran and Afghanistan. And so by being present at the, as they call them, hostels, really refugee centers, uh, where they are temporarily housed before being moved to other areas of the UK, we are able to make an, an immediate impact upon them as they arrive. And then thirdly, there is an Iranian church in Liverpool called the Frontline Iranian Church. And their dynamic evangelist, Pastor Shapur and his wife, Yasmin, are discipling these immigrants into the Christian faith and what I can only describe as a torrential pace. Now, you can see their picture here on the video screens. These people fall into the category of what I call stinking cute. For the past several years, our congregation has been supporting Shapur and the frontline Iranian church and their work among these refugees. And we've been doing this. We've been offering the support again in three ways. Let me walk you through those very briefly. First, we've been sending prayer and financial support for the church in Shapur. And so I should add here, everything that I'm going to talk to you about today is a result, frankly, of your giving. So please be aware of that. Secondly, we've sent David and Susan Rice, career missionaries who are part of our congregation here in Greenville, to support them in Liverpool in their ministry. Now, David and Susan are career missionaries. They are professionals at what they do, and we witnessed them while we were there coming alongside this uh, small church of Iranians in some very, very marvelous ways. And finally... The third way that we've supported these folks so far, if we've sent two teams, one before COVID and now one afterwards, and we go there to kind of help turbocharge their efforts. Now, during this last trip, we were particularly engaged with these refugees from Iran, who I can only describe as probably the most God hungry people I've ever met in my life. When they hear the good news about a Savior who loves them, in contrast to what they've heard about God previously all of their lives, they come almost running and tripping 
into the arms of the same Jesus that you and I have come to know and to love. One of the highlights of this trip, and certainly for me personally, was on Monday, July 18th, which happened to be the hottest day in the UK in over 30 years, when we went to the beach off the coast of Liverpool, and we baptized 24 new Iranian believers in the ocean. Uh, This is a part of what happened that day. that. I think it was pretty easy to see from the video the joy that was so palpable that day. It was all over their faces, friends. And if you look very closely at ours, it was all over our faces, too. Uh, And I have to say, for me, this was one of the highlights of my life, uh, this experience that day. This is one dimension of what happened on the beach that day. And what I want to do for a little while is walk you through another dimension, some other parts of the story that were not so easily seen. But the first thing I would like to say is this. I think most of you are aware that all of these guys that you've just seen uh, being baptized, they would have been executed for what they've just done had they had this occurred in Iran or Afghanistan. You guys understand that, right? Some of them had waited, catch this, for as many as 15 years for this day when they could publicly declare that Jesus was their Savior and Lord. 
the next day, this young man, I'll not mention his name, he was a, he was a part of the group. He wanted me to sign his Bible. And it's hard, you can't see it on the video screen there, but he had written this in English. He said, a record of the most important day of my life, baptism, July 18, 2022. Here's another side of the story. It's hard to see from the video, but the beach was full that day of Brits on vacation, seeking relief from the heat. While I was out on the water with Shapur and David Rice and John Harding, the pastor of the British congregation at Frontline Church, members of our team were talking to Brits like these two who were coming up to the shoreline and asking us, they were literally asking us this, what is that? Amazingly, almost all of them had absolutely no reference for what they were watching. Now, one of the guys that you see here on seeing the joy and exuberance of those being baptized, one of our team, Emily Dahl, he came up to Emily and, and he said he couldn't explain how he was feeling. He said there was something in him that was drawing him to what he was seeing. And he wanted to be baptized, too, on the spot. So we strategized and thought a little bit and we took the more, those, I think, reasonable path. And so we introduced him to the British pastor who was there with us, John Harding. And John spoke to him and he invited him to come to his church. And he said this, you need to understand that when you're baptized, you're baptized into the body of Christ. And this becomes your family. So will you please come and get to know your family first, and then we will talk about what it means to be baptized. This whole day was marked with such unbelievable beauty. Some of our team who were there are a part of the Gathering Sunday School Life Connections class here, and they're going to be doing a presentation on what happened there during the Sunday School class later this morning. I bet if you ask them, you could get them to come to your Sunday School class as well. They don't know that I was going to do that. I just volunteered them for something. But you go ahead and sell them that I said that they could come, and I bet that they, I bet that they will. All right, so we've talked about a few sides of the story, but there's another side that I need to share with you also. You see, there was an ugliness on the beach along with the beauty that day as well. While we were administering the baptisms off to the side, there was a group of three British guys who appeared, I'd say, in their early 20s, maybe late teens. And they were hanging out on a rocky breakwater between the beach and the choppy waters of the ocean meeting the River Mercy. They were drunk. They were high as kites, and they were physically menacing. They mocked us and these new Iranian believers. One of them, who I've pictured here, I blurred his face out. One of them tried to photobomb our group shot, and we tried to be nice to him and include him in some of the smaller shots as well. And when we did so, he would raise his middle finger. Are you getting the picture here? One of our team members, intrepid Rip Parks, now I know none of you who know Rip believe that he would do a, uh, this kind of thing, but he earnestly tried to engage this young man, and he asked Rip, he said, he said, what are you doing? And Rip replied that these were Christian baptisms, and the young man asked, do you believe in God? And Rip said, of course I do. And the young man replied, but you're in England. 
meaning that God might be in America or some other places around the world. But he's not here in post-Christian secular England. Now, the dramatic juxtaposition between the lostness that drove the despair and the ugliness of that one young man and the foundness that animated the unbridled joy of these new Iranian believers was such a profound contrast that even that day, some folks on our team called home back to the States just in order to process what we had experienced. And as I considered what I might talk to you all today as we wrap up this kind of mini-series on transforming the heart of the series, I began to think maybe it would be good for us, maybe even profitable for us to look at this day from almost halfway around the world from an explicitly Christian, I would say, scriptural perspective as a way of understanding how we might approach our own mission to transform the heart of Greenville and beyond. And so to do that, I want to turn our our attention once again to our text this morning from Galatians chapter 2. In these verses that we read earlier, Paul ardently affirms that when you and I come into a living, vibrant relationship with a loving God, we do so on the basis of Christ alone. And that it is, and that relationship is made possible by his death and resurrection and made alive by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we say that, we are not saying that the law has no place in the Christian life. The law is a good thing. It helps us to understand what life in Christ looks like. Those of you who are familiar with our denomination's essential tenets may remember that the very last section of that document offers a positive application of the Ten Commandments for the life of a Christian. It's one of my favorites in the document. But now here's the distinction that Paul makes. Following the commandments is a result of our justification, not the cause of it. Following the Ten Commandments is a result of our justification, not the cause of it. Following the law is a natural outflow of our uh, Gratitude and obedience to our Lord, but doing so is not the basis of our relationship with God. If it were, then it would be what the theologians call works righteousness. And Paul snipes at those who would believe this in verse 21, where he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, if there was any other way for you and I to enjoy a relationship with God except through his son, then Jesus's death on the cross would have been a waste or maybe even just a bad joke. Rather, Paul says that we're called to die. We're called to die to this notion that we can come and remain in a relationship with God on the basis of observing the law or we might say doing good. Or really anything that we might concoct to form our identities around, whether it's our race, our nationality, our sexuality, or our jobs, or our political party, or anything else we might pursue in order to find our fundamental identity. 
Instead, he says that you and I should come to understand that ourselves have been so completely put to death or crucified in Christ that it's no longer you and me that's really living. Rather, it's the life of the resurrected Jesus living in us and transforming us by restoring the image of God in us that was lost at the fall. So now what this means is this. The significance of our lives and our identities are no longer ours or anyone else's to define. Rather, that's the sole propriety of the one who lives his life through us, who, by the way, loves us so much that he gave his life for us. And now you and I are called to live this physical and spiritual life that we've been given as a gift and a trusting relationship with the Son of God who made us, sustains us, and who has numbered the days of our lives. Paul was so convinced that his and our identities are to be rooted in Christ alone. He says in Philippians, one of his other letters, that everything from his family tree to his hotshot education to his faithful obedience to the law, all of these were nothing. In fact, he called them garbage, a refuge in comparison to experiencing Christ as his Lord. One of these days, I'll tell you the actual Greek meaning of the term there. I can't say it in public, but it's graphic, y'all. His former life was nothing compared to knowing Christ now. And even more than this, he says that losing all these things as identifiers in his life was actually the best thing that ever happened to him because it allowed him to experience new life by participating in Jesus' sufferings, quote, becoming like him in his death. These new Iranian believers, friends, I had an opportunity to hear almost all of their stories And every one of their stories sounded almost exactly like the story of the Apostle Paul. When they fled Iran, they lost everything. Their jobs, incomes, educations, their families, their parents, their wives, and children. They lost their nationality. They lost their language. They lost their food. Everything that marked their outward identities. And they still suffer for this. Before our trip, we trained ourselves to do ministry with those who are experiencing PTSD. And there were times when I asked some of them what caused them or the story that that led them to leave their home countries. And And I could see in some of them the emotion welling up such that it it would get caught here and they couldn't talk. The trauma was so real. Many of them had been tortured. And yet here they were. Laughing, dancing, and crying for joy on a beach. How can this be? I'll tell you how. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. These new believers had experienced the truth of this verse. They had lost everything that they had previously informed their identities. And now all they had literally was Christ alone. And it made them dance. Suddenly ask all of you. Have you found yourself laughing, dancing, and crying with joy on a beach over just simply experiencing Christ in his presence in your life? Or do you or someone else you know feel like that young Brit who we encountered who said that God was not in England and was angry, despairing, and lost? If you feel the second way, it's not really so surprising because you see, that is the hollow promise that our culture has been increasingly pitching over the years. And the promise is this. You and I are the makers of our own identities. And we don't need God or anyone else for that. And friends, that makes Galatians 2.20 maybe the most countercultural statement in the whole Bible. In terms of the world we live in today. Because you see, it communicates the exact opposite message that you and I receive about a thousand times per day. And that story goes like this. Years ago, people used to believe in God. Fairies and unicorns. But as we become more enlightened, we became rational and stopped believing in the supernatural. And so if we can just leave behind the superstitious beliefs of the past and realize that we're really just random collections of atoms and molecules, then we can be free to be who we really are. The only thing holding us back are those folks who haven't quite gotten with the program yet. It's those religious people who still believe in this God stuff and who continue to oppress us with their outdated beliefs and traditions and morals. But if we can just courageously be true to ourselves... We will discover our authentic selves within. Then we can discover and pursue our full potential, chase our dreams, and refuse to let anyone else tell us who we are to be. All of this, I think, can be summarized in a popular phrase. You do you. I don't know who came up with that. Maybe it was Oprah. I don't know. But let me ask you all, how many of you, show of hands, have heard a story like this before? Have you heard this line of thought? Yeah. If you haven't, you haven't been on Facebook very much. And that's okay. But it's all over Facebook, let me tell you. All I want to ask is just for a little while, let's just look into this story that I just shared with you. Let's look into it just a little bit more closely. The first thing that you and I might say is that in a culture that is supposed to value diversity, this is just about the most Western-centric narrative imaginal built upon privilege and the rugged individualism that Pastor Charlie talked about last week. The truth of the matter is secularism is actually declining all around the world, except in Western Europe and North America. And Christianity is the fastest growing faith on our planet by conversion. 
Millions and millions of people, especially in the majority world, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and yes, even in the Middle East, in nations like Iran, people are coming to love and worship and follow Jesus. So what are we so what are they seeing in Jesus that we in the West are missing? Well, perhaps it's time for us literally to get over ourselves and move beyond some of our Western presuppositions about the Christian faith. Rediscover the Jesus of the Bible and find the freedom in him that the rest of the world seems to be discovering. Secondly. This notion of finding ourselves by looking solely on the inside sounds like a great story. To thine own be self be true, right? That's Hamlet, by the way. And there's a debate about that. That's not in the Bible. But here's the thing. The story always falls apart. Like Pastor Charlie reminded us last week. There's pain in every pew. It's impossible to do what makes us happy all the time. Life is not like that. And living for me, myself, and I can become a recipe for loneliness, exhaustion, and anxiety. In fact, statistically, that is what is happening in Western cultures as younger generations increasingly move further and further away from the creator God who was the identity giver and from a rhythm of life that involves worship, community, in service and mission. As a recent Atlantic article shows, the level of stress, anxiety, and sadness among young people are skyrocketing. Some of this is fueled by social media, which encourages uh, us to be influencers by expressing, again, our authentic selves. But then other social media users take that opportunity to slam us when we do. So here's the irony of this all. When we're supposed to create our own identities, we have to reach out to others to affirm or deny whether that true identity is true or not. You see how that works? Folks, it doesn't. It's exhausting. It's emotionally crippling for young people. And guess what? It can hurt adult feelings, too. Social media critics call this life as performance. But it's really just good old-fashioned narcissism. And if we're not careful, this approach to life can even bleed over into the Christian life in the shape of kind of a me-and-Jesus kind of faith that Pastor Charlie talked about last week. A faith devoid of community, of service and mission. Scholars call this religious consumerism, and many of them believe that Religious consumerism is actually the most insidious threat to the church in the West. Author Sam Chan says that trying to create our own purpose is like a nation who prints its own money. You can't generate wealth just by printing money. The money itself has no value unless it's linked to an external reference point. In the same way, we can't create our own purpose. We can try, but ultimately it will be valueless unless we can link it to an external reference point. And that is God's purpose for us. I put it like this. It's kind of like a wise investment advisor who might say something like this. Sure, have a little fun with cryptocurrency, but don't form your entire retirement strategy around it. 
Building your identity solely around yourself is kind of like investing in Bitcoin is your major retirement strategy. Are you getting my story here? Good. Anyway, here's the good news. In Christ, we're given our identity, our belonging, and our purpose. Our identity is as a child of the Most High God. Our belonging is satisfied in the church as family, or the Greek word oikos. And our purpose is found in God's mission to restore the cosmos from the effects of the fall by making disciples. We're wired by God to live into a story that is much bigger than ourselves. One in which we finally discover who we are and why we are here. Because it's in that story that we find the God who made us, loves us, and saves us. And by the way, friends, this is why we go on these short-term mission trips. When we step out of our bubbles with our preconceptions about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity, we're able to experience Jesus on his own terms. And then we can see what the rest of the world has been seeing in Jesus of Nazareth, the one who invites us to live into his story, which is the better one that we could ever dream for ourselves. You see, secularism, as it is increasingly taking hold in Western Europe and North America, does not have the power to erase our human longings for meaning and worth. If anything, it increases them. God has placed a longing for identity, meaning and purpose in all human parts, hearts. So even if we can't quite articulate what they feel like they are missing, this longing and this wistfulness are still there For those who don't even know where it comes from. Now sometimes this craving comes out positively. Like the Brit who wanted to be baptized that day. Sometimes this longing is expressed negatively. Like the other young man who tried to fill the hole by lashing out in anger and disdain. But no matter which of these reactions you and I might run into, no one will know where to look to find this, where this hole in their hearts can be filled unless you and I as followers of Jesus both live and tell the good news about how we have found our identities in him. Let me wrap up by saying this. The Christian life is not about living Our best lives now. It's not about personal fulfillment. Or being true to oneself. Instead Jesus says things like this in Matthew 16, 24. He says a true follower will deny himself and take up his cross. Folks, that's Christianity. It's hard. It's difficult. And it's really tough to market. But that's the message you and I are called to share as we join in God's mission to transform the heart of our city and beyond. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. The truth Beauty and goodness of the gospel is that in order for you and I to live, we got to die. 
Because it's in and through the cross of Christ that our identities are formed. This means that we don't need to gain attention or a sense of worth by making spectacle of ourselves, either on Instagram or on a beach. Instead, we can walk with confidence and freedom because we know the one who runs the world is a perfect, kind father who calls us sons and daughters. The cross proves that God's love and acceptance of us isn't based on our performance, but on Jesus's performance. It's in Christ that we find our deepest security. And the wonderful message of the gospel is that what we've been looking for and longing for our whole lives is found in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And my friends, let me tell you, finding that is just about enough to make you laugh, dance, and cry on the beach. I want to take just a moment this morning, instead of closing us to prayer, I want to invite you to take a look on the video screen for just a moment. And I want to give you some quiet time. Looks like a good little formatting problem here, but that's okay. You'll get it. I want you to quietly consider three questions that I'm going to put up here for you. And if they don't come up perfectly, I'm going to tell you what they are. I want you to quietly to consider for just a moment this. What has God been saying to you through his word this morning? Secondly, What are you going to do about it? And then the third question is this. Who are you going to tell so that they can keep you accountable to doing what you say God has told you to do? I'm going to give us a few seconds just to ponder that. You might even want to write it down. If you can't conclude these questions today, I invite you to think about them today and later this week. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. What is God saying to you through his word today? What are you going to do about it? And who will you tell to keep you accountable to that? Father, disciple us through your word today. That we would go from here, not merely having heard your word. But being willing and able and equipped to do it as well. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.